The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. So estimated GFR is a very rough approximation of true GFR in an individual patient. Effect of the race adjustment is very small compared to the overall imprecision in GFR estimation. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Welcome to this week's episode of Annals on Call. Today we're going to be discussing a paper from the August 18th Annals of Internal Medicine 2020 titled Race in the False Precision of Glomerular Filtration Rate Estimates by Ashwini Sagal. He's a nephrologist at Metro Health Medical Center and professor of medicine at the Case Western Reserve University. He's the director and Duncan Neuheiser Professor of Community Health Improvement, Center for Reducing Health Disparities in the School of Medicine. We hope that you enjoy this discussion. Ash, thank you so much for uh, joining this uh, podcast today. Your article in the Annals really made so much sense and helped me in my own mind frame the concern that many have about including race in the estimated GFR equation. So I think it'd be really worthwhile for us to first talk about what estimated GFR is and what it isn't, why it came about, a little history of estimated GFR, and the mistakes that we make using estimated GFR. So maybe you could just tell us about that. Sure. So I think that there's uh, three different GFR estimating equations that we should talk about. The first is the Cockcroft-Galt equation, which was developed in 1976. This equation estimates GFR based on serum creatinine, age, sex, and body weight, but not based on race. Now this equation was developed before standardized creatinine assays were available. And as a result, it tends to overestimate GFR. So that's the first equation, the Cockcroft-Galt. The next important equation is the MDRD equation, which was developed in 1999. It's based on 1,600 participants with chronic kidney disease who participated in the modification of diet in renal disease study. Most of the participants were white or black. There were very few Hispanics or Asians in that, in that study. The MDRD equation estimates GFR based on serum creatinine, age, race, and sex. One of the limitations of the MDRD equation is that it tends to underestimate GFR when GFR is normal or slightly reduced. And then the third equation we should talk about is the CKD-EPI, or Chronic Kidney Disease Epidemiology Collaboration Equation, which was developed in 2009. This was developed based on pooling several thousand participants from 10 American and European cohorts. As with the MDRD, this sample consists mostly of whites and blacks. Again, there's very few Hispanics and Asians. This equation is also based on serum creatinine, age, race, and sex. It appears to work as well as or better than the MDRD equation across the entire range of GFRs. And as a result, this is the most commonly used equation right now. So those are the three important equations, the Cockcroft-Galt, 
the MDRD and the CKD epi. Just for the people who've never thought about estimated GFR, tell me if I have this right. What we did before Cockroft Galt, and I actually was a medical student before Cockroft Galt, is we would measure a 24 hour urine and uh, use the famous clearance equation, UV over P, urine creatinine times volume over time, divided by plasma creatinine. The assumption is that UV, the urine creatinine times the volume over 24 hours, is a function of normal muscle metabolism. And so if you can estimate how much muscle someone has, then you know what UV dot is. And all of these equations are really trying to do the same thing. They're trying to estimate muscle mass so that they can get the numerator of the equation. That's because plasma creatinine stays the same in the, in the denominator. So if, if that's right, then we understand from the very first that the estimated GFR is not a real number. It's an estimating number, the E stands for estimation, and that the assumption in MDRD and CKD-EPI is that everybody of a certain age, race, and gender has approximately the same muscle mass, which we know is, is false. How much of a problem is this? Well, so let me just first address what you said about collecting the 24-hour urine. Estimating GFR based on a 24-hour collection of urine is based on the serum creatinine and the 24-hour urine creatinine excretion. There's two limitations of that approach. One is that you might have an incomplete urine collection. In fact, you often have an incomplete urine collection, and that results in a falsely low GFR estimate. And the other limitation is that as uh, GFR falls, uh, creatinine secretion tends to increase, and so that will result in a falsely high GFR estimate. And of course, it's, it's cumbersome to collect uh, urine for, for 24 hours. So what these equations do is they start with serum creatinine, which represents a balance between production of creatinine, which is mostly from muscle mass, and excretion of creatinine, which is mostly from glomerular filtration. And um, if we knew serum creatinine and muscle creatinine production, then we could calculate GFR. But there's no practical methods to accurately quantify creatinine production or even underlying muscle mass. So what these equations do is that they use age, sex, and black race as proxies for muscle creatinine generation, as well as for other factors that have a smaller effect, like tubular secretion and gut elimination. The result of this approach is that there's a race adjustment in both of the two equations. In the case of the CKD-EPI equation, there's a 16% higher estimated GFR for blacks compared to whites at the same creatinine level, age, and sex. And this is thought to be due to a higher average muscle mass among blacks compared to whites. So the assumption, and you make this very clear in the article, is that when we're doing these estimations, that on average, blacks have higher muscle mass than whites. The assumption here is that race is dichotomous, that we can divide people into black or white, and they're totally different. And I believe it's anthropologists really have questioned the whole conceptualization of race as a variable. Could you talk about that? Because that, I think that's one of the most important parts of, of your article. Race is a social construct that was created by the European colonizers about 500 years ago to justify appropriating the land, labor, and resources of Africans. 
prior to that, race as a concept did not exist. So people thought of themselves as part of a clan or part of a tribe or part of an ethnic group, but not as part of a white race or a black race. It's worth pointing out that uh, biological differences between what we call racial groups are minimal or non-existent, but there's lots of differences between racial groups because of the impact of race-based policies and practices such as segregated housing, poverty, and um, racism. So to address this issue about the muscle mass differences, I looked at muscle mass measurements that were done on 5,000 Americans as part of the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, or NHANES. And I found that, in fact, blacks do have, on average, a slightly higher muscle mass than whites. I also found that Hispanics and Asians have, on average, a slightly lower muscle mass than whites. So this would suggest that several races and ethnicities should be adjusted for in the equations, but it would be very difficult to do that because the electronic health records are often incomplete or inaccurate when it comes to uh, specifying race and ethnicity. Also in our increasingly blended country, many people are multiracial or self-identify themselves differently from how, how other people perceive them. So it would be uh, a challenge to accurately determine race and ethnicity and then use it in uh, GFR adjustment equations. It's also worth uh, mentioning that these NHANES differences that I found don't prove that there are biological differences. The average muscle masses uh, across the different groups, the different racial and ethnic groups probably reflect lifetime differences in nutritional status, comorbid conditions, occupational activity, and other physical exertion. It's also worth emphasizing that as best we can tell, there's no racial differences in directly measured GFR. This whole debate is about the appropriateness of using race to estimate GFR. That really makes a lot of sense. First, let's talk about the implications of using the race-adjusted formulas. In what way does that disadvantage our Black patients? Sure. Um, so I think that there's implications of the race adjustment for GFR estimation, but then there's also implications for how we think about race. So in terms of GFR estimation, the race adjustment means that estimated GFR will be a few milliliters per minute higher among blacks compared to whites with the same serum creatinine age and, and sex. Now this is a pretty small difference compared to the overall imprecision in GFR estimation which can be 20, 30, or 40 milliliters per minute, depending on the level of uh, renal function. So what do I mean by that? Well, I looked at 1,000 uh, participants in the CRIC study. That's the Chronic Renal Insufficiency Cohort Study. These individuals had both an estimated GFR and a directly measured GFR done. And I found that at an estimated GFR of 30, the measured GFR ranged anywhere from 17 to 48 about 95% of the time. And at an estimated GFR of 60, the measured GFR ranged from 41 to 98. So estimated GFR at best is a very rough approximation of true GFR in an individual patient. So the effect of the race adjustment is very small compared to the overall imprecision in uh, GFR estimation. The other implication of race-based equations in this case is that I think that including a race adjustment in GFR estimation in isolation probably doesn't have much of an impact, either positive or negative. 
but in the context of other things that are going on in our society, it adds to the notion that black bodies and white bodies are fundamentally different. So for example, we know that emergency room patients who are black are less likely to receive medication to treat acute pain than white patients. And this may be in part due to an incorrect belief that blacks have less sensitive nerve endings than whites. We also know that police tend to view black boys as bigger and older than they really, really are, which often has tragic consequences. So including race in GFR estimating equations reinforces this false idea that blacks and whites are biologically different. This is especially problematic here because in this case, race is adjusting most likely for muscle mass and that evokes these false claims from the time of slavery that black bodies are more suitable for physical labor while white bodies are more suitable for mental tasks. So the net result of all this process is that we get a very small improvement in accuracy in estimating GFR, but we're also reinforcing this notion that blacks and whites are biologically different. I think there are two things here that we need to consider. Number one is what is the primary care physician or the hospitalist to do when they have someone who has a creatinine of two and then they get a number of an estimated GFR and now they're starting to label patients as having chronic kidney disease. And we don't really know what that number means from what you just said because there's a really wide uh, variance in what the true GFR does. I just read an article um, in another journal that suggested that at certain estimated GFRs, maybe we should reflex to some better measure of GFR so that estimated GFR 40 might really not be kidney disease, but might be significant kidney disease. And so going to a better test might be helpful. Is, was, is that part of your thought process? And, and is this something that might catch on? Yeah, so I think uh, let's start with what uh, providers should do. So I think that uh, whenever a lab reports a GFR estimate, it should be accompanied with a range of measured GFRs that uh, correspond to those estimates. And then I think providers need to interpret the estimated GFR based on a patient's clinical status. So patients who have a better nutritional status, higher fitness levels, stronger muscle strength are more likely to have GFRs that are in the higher end of the range, whereas frail patients are likely to have GFRs that are in the, in the lower end of that range. I think it's also important for providers to look at trends over time and to um, order additional tests such as a renal ultrasound or a urine proteinuria as indicated. Now, I realize that this is not as simple as relying on it single estimated GFR value that's reported to one or two decimal places. But uh, this is what we do as internists, right? We take lots of disparate pieces of information and then we synthesize it into a diagnosis and plan. Now let's talk about other tests that might be better than estimated GFR. So one thing that's been proposed is a cystatin-C test as an alternative. So cystatin-C is a cysteine protease inhibitor. It's present in all tissues. It's produced at a constant rate. It's filtered freely at the glomerulus and it's not reabsorbed. You can estimate GFR based on cystatin C, just like you estimate GFR based on serum creatinine. And the estimates based on cystatin C include adjustments for age and sex, but not for race. But it turns out that estimated GFR based on cystatin is about as accurate or inaccurate 
as estimated GFR based on creatinine, but it just doesn't have the issue with the race adjustment. It's also quite a bit more expensive. Uh, I checked on this and in Cleveland, it's $85 for a cystatin C test compared to $18 for a serum creatinine for self-pay patients. So it's about five times as expensive. The other thing to consider is, well, should we just directly measure GFR periodically on patients that we're concerned about? So one of the ways to do that is to use the marker iothalamate. So iothalamate is an iodine-containing organic anion that's used as a radio contrast agent. To measure GFR, either a sub-Q or IV bolus of iothalamate is administered, and then several urine and blood samples are collected over the next few hours. I think it would be reasonable to do this direct measure of GFR whenever a critical decision needs to be made, for example, whether to start chronic dialysis in somebody or when evaluating a potential kidney donor. Uh, of course, this is also gonna be much more expensive than simply estimating GFR based on a serum creatinine level. All of this puts us in a bit of a dilemma as a general internist, whether we're doing outpatient or inpatient medicine, in that we're trying to make decisions about what to do with patients who have an estimated GFR of 50 or 40 or 30 or 20. And those numbers are sort of soft numbers. Uh, they could be higher, they could be lower. And one thing I heard you say, uh, which I think is really important, is once we think something's going on, then we have to say, is there other evidence of kidney disease? Mm -hmm. And how does that impact us? And I know the, the current KDGO uh, formulation of the stages of kidney disease include proteinuria as a major factor, and also include, is there some known disease? Do they have glomerulonephritis? Do they have polycystic kidney disease? Uh, or some other inherited disease. And I think that that's really an important point is, does this number make sense? If there's no proteinuria and you have an estimated GFR of 50, you probably don't have kidney disease unless we have one of these other things. At what point do you start looking for things that might be complications of kidney disease? It would be another factor that, this is the, that the decrease in GFR is real and important looking for secondary hyperparathyroidism, looking for metabolic acidosis, looking for anemia, things like that. Yeah, I, I agree with everything that uh, you said. I think we just have to take a more holistic uh, approach to trying to figure out what's going on. Because of the importance of this uh, topic and the attention it's gotten recently, uh, the American Society of Nephrology and the National Kidney Foundation just announced the, for the formation of a task force to come up with recommendations on what we all should do. And so I think it'd be interesting to see what, uh, what they come up with. Leaving race aside at this point, one of the things that I discuss a lot with the house staff is when you just cannot use the estimated GFR. Mm -hmm. um, for example, I've had two or three patients in the last year who had estimated GFRs of 300. Why don't we just go over for our listeners when the estimated GFR just won't work, remembering that the estimated GFR is estimating a normal muscle mass. Sure, so that's a good question. So because these estimating equations are based on serum creatinine, GFR estimates are affected by variations in muscle mass. So they tend not to work well when somebody's muscle mass or body size or shape differ in some substantial way from most other people. So uh, individuals who are very malnourished, who have morbid obesity, 
who've had an amputation, who are pregnant. Those are the kinds of uh, situations where the estimated GFR might not work well. It also might not work well for other ethnic groups beyond blacks and whites, such as Asians. And so it's not surprising that investigators in several Asian countries have had to develop their own GFR estimating equations. And they also, as you mentioned, they also tend not to work well uh, in uh, diabetics who have a very high GFR for reasons that we don't completely understand yet. Yeah, so I, I had a couple people who were very malnourished uh, and had that. I had the experience of almost making mistakes in uh, drug dosing in spinal cord injury patients who uh, will uh, have a much uh, lower estimated GFR than the formulas will, will say. Mm -hmm. It's interesting that the, the pharmacists at uh, the hospital where I work, when they're doing drug dosing, revert back to Cockroft Galt uh, mm. as a better way to adjust for uh, these weight things. Now, that doesn't really help you in obesity, but uh, if you're in a hospital where pharmacy likes Cockroft Galt, I think that that's trying to adjust for the uh, cachexic patient and uh, also underestimate uh, the GFR in someone who's really muscle-bound. I, I have a great story that I had a medical student who was a serious weightlifter during the second year of medical school and had a cranium of 1.3. Mm -hmm. Didn't have as much time to do weightlifting and he was told that he had emerging kidney disease. As a third year student, he was a very good third year student, still did some weightlifting, but, but uh, lost 10 to 20 pounds of muscle mass and his cranium went down to one. He had the same <laughs> renal function both times. Uh, so if you have an NFL football player, you have power lifters, uh, you're going to overdiagnose kidney disease in those people and underestimate their GFR. And I think that's really important for people to understand where the numbers come from and what the implications are of understanding where those numbers come from. Yeah, I think that's a great example. So your serum creatinine, if it's a little bit high, it could be a little bit high because your GFR is a little bit low or it could be a little bit high because you have a lot of muscle mass and therefore a lot of creatinine generation. So I think this has been great. What's your final message for the non-nephrologist when they look at these numbers? I think the final message would be that we just have to look at lots of different pieces of information and then synthesize that to come up with a diagnosis and plan instead of just relying on a single GFR estimate that is not as precise as we think it is. Ash, thank you so much. I think this has been very, very helpful and I'm going to highly recommend this podcast to all my colleagues. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This uh, most interesting discussion focused on two issues. The first is that estimated GFR is an estimated number. We should only use it in the context of the totality of data about renal function, which includes whether or not the patient has proteinuria and how much, past renal history, and evidence of secondary metabolic changes such as secondary hyperparathyroidism, renal acidosis, or new anemia. Knowing this and knowing that race is a social construct, it turns out that while race theoretically adds some accuracy to the estimation of GFR, it doesn't add enough to be useful in the equations, and there's likely some harm in 
the indirect implications of including race in estimated GFR. I believe this discussion will make you think very carefully about how we use estimated GFR and what race really means in this context. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participants' statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.